Um, we're going to continue on this series. Um, good news for everybody. Sean, I couldn't remember the title, but it's, good, it's a silly title, so that's why you couldn't remember it, Sean. Good news for everybody. Um, and the purpose of this series is to get us to think about our bodies. That's, I mean, literally, that's it. I mean, like, I had some specific things, and I definitely have some specific things. I, I, I have to, we have to think about that, and there's some instructions in the Word about how we have and how we're to use and honor God with our bodies. But we, we really just need to think about the, 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 the parts that our bodies, the important parts that our bodies play in our spiritual lives. That's really what I want us to do. And if you heard what I just said... I, I doubt you even notice it, but there, there's some, some logic that I just used that I think is common among us, but I think it's worth thinking about. Because I just made the claim that our bodies, I'll just say what I said, our bodies are an important part of our spiritual lives, that your body is an important part of your spiritual life. And of course, that statement only makes any sense, is, is meaningful at all, because I think because we live under some, some strange assumptions that is, we don't just assume naturally that there is an immediate and inseparable connection between our bodies and our spiritual lives. We think of those things as two separate things. See, if I were to say, come up here and say profoundly, right, um, oranges are important for orange juice, you would say, duh, but I say the body is important for the spiritual life, and we say, oh, huh, interesting. And yet I think those two things are really qualitatively similar. When, we say, uh, when I say that our bodies and what we do with them are important for our spiritual lives, it sounds novel because I think very few of us think of our bodies when we talk about our spirituality. We have mentally separated the two. And um, we don't think of them as being connected. But I'm here to tell you, and this is the only thing I want to tell you this morning, is that your body really matters. Your body matters. <laughs> it matters particularly for not your spiritual life, but your whole life. It is a really important part of you. Amen, yeah. Just like oranges are a really important part of orange juice. Really essential, can't separate them. Your body matters, and it is connected intimately to the point of inseparability to your spiritual life. And that's because of how you were created. It's because of how you were created. You are a created being, and the one who created you has authorial intent, right? And, and did it intentionally. He put us in bodies. See, when God set out to make people, human beings, people who would be capable of relationship with him, which was and remains our calling, people who could partner with him to fill the earth with his glory, he didn't make us spiritual beings without bodies. He put us as made us as embodied people to do all those things, to do the spiritual work of relationship, to do the work of, of, of glorifying him. He gave us bodies right at the beginning, and we read about that in, in Genesis 1, oh, just, just in case you hadn't heard it. Then God said, let us make man in our image, as, as we're called to be his, his image in the world. He makes us according to our likeness, uh, to God's likeness. They will rule the, the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God, and he created him, them male and female. 
and God blessed them, and God said, be fruitful, and be multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. And then skipping ahead a little bit, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. At creation, God gave us bodies. He gave people bodies. He looked at them, and he said they were good. An assessment of the quality of the thing, its suitability to do what it was designed to do. To be a good, the body is a good place for us to relate to God. It is a good place for us to fulfill our purpose for which we created. We were, (laughs) bodies are exactly what people needed to live. They were exactly what they needed to know God and have a relationship with him and exactly what they needed to fulfill their purpose. So how is it that we, by and large, have lost sight of the role that our body plays in our relationship with God? I think at best, um, we think of our bodies as sort of incidental to our lives and to our relationship with God. Like they just, well, they're just a necessity because we live in three dimensions, and so you need a body. So you just like, like our bodies are, are at best what we think of as kind of like houses for our spirit, like avatars, where, but our internal, our true self is hidden inside, but we have to have this material body. Or at worst, and, and I, think, I think a lot more people actually feel this way about their bodies, we feel like our bodies are like cages, just getting in our way, slowing us down, keeping us from being and, and fulfilling our inner reality, our inner true self. We think of ourselves as inside or a reality. So how did it get this way? Um, well, I mean, we talk about sin, and that's what we're going to get to towards the end here, then the impact that sin has had on us. And we're going to get there, but, but before that, like, I think it's worth pointing out uh, that our conflicted feelings about our bodies stem, I think, from a way of just understanding ourselves and, and the world that we live in. And it's something that's not just true of Christians, or, or, not, or not. it's true of everybody. Everybody has this, this interesting way of, of, of viewing what the self is. Uh, Nancy Piercy, she's a, she's a writer and an apologist and like a really smart lady. Uh, she describes this phenomena as the two-story worldview. So we think of ourselves like two-story creatures. And we actually think of the world that we live in like a two-storied world. It's divided up. There's a sacred world. There's a sacred thing. that We, th- we think of that as spiritual things or, or churchy things or things like that. Or, or if you're a totally secular person, you think of it as the mind. There's a mental world, the, the, the idea of, of reason and thoughts, right? And so that's that upper level of the house. Think of it as like a house with two stories. The upper level of the house is, is this intangible ideal, internal, unseen sort of thing. And then there's, of course, the material world, the secular world. Our bodies we think of as a necessity in that world. They're just like a, and it's just a thing that just has to happen. It's a dualistic sort of view of the world, right? A lot of times Christian theologians will talk about dualism, and this is what they mean, that we have imposed on ourselves and on the world an idea that it's sort of split in two. There's spiritual, immaterial, metaphysical, and then there's the physical, and there's the the reality stuff, and that they're just kind of incidentally connected, right? And it's something, it's, it's, it's a common, um, it was, it was, it's common today, I think especially in the Enlightenment really hinges on this, 
Descartes, like an, an Enlightenment philosopher. You don't, you don't need to know about Descartes if you don't want to, but in case you're interested, if you're a nerd like me, uh, Descartes, he, he, he had this Cartesian understanding of the world, and, and it's that this idea is separated into this thing, and it's what a lot of the Enlightenment hinges on this idea of the, the way that we can understand the world, right? And so like science, right? Science is well, we can only observe the material world. We operate down here in the secular. We don't really have any access or way to prove and test anything in the sacred world. So materialism, this idea that we just have to operate down in the lower floor if we're going to come to any truth, that's, that's pervasive in our, in, our, in, our, in our society. I'm getting off topic. I apologize. Um, so it's common in our, in our culture today. It was also so common. This, this kind of dualism was super common uh, in Jesus' time, and it, it goes back to ancient Greek philosophy where they believed, like, okay, we have the, the material kind of broken world, but then there's this ideal thing in heaven, platonic ideals. Plato had these ideas about how the, the world could be um, being good was basically achieving more towards this sacred metaphysical space. Right, so, so we, but the point is all of this, is that we think of people, and we, we persistently think of our lives and ourselves and the world that we live in as kind of divided. It's just inherent in the way that we think about life, and it's a problem. Another way of illustrating this, think about water. What is, so, for you, you didn't think this was going to be this nerdy, but it's going to be super nerdy. Uh, anyone remember the chemical, you know, the, the molecular symbol for water? H2O? Yeah, I heard it right there. And so that means that it's what? What's the H? A plus. Good job. Hydrogen, two hydrogens for every oxygen, right? But if I, if I take a half a glass of hydrogen, I don't know how that works, and half a glass of oxygen, and I just go like this, am I drinking water? No, I'm drinking hydrogen and oxygen. Two molecules of hydrogen come together with one molecule of oxygen, and we could think of them as their particular sep separate things, right? That's what we do when we think about it chemically, molecular, the molecular structure, but it ain't water just because it's two hydrogens and one oxygen. Water is those things coming together and being bonded. That is the nature of it. It is those, those two elements coming together and being bonded. That's what makes it water. And I think that has a lot to do with our own lives. In a sense, yes, your life is, in a sense, composed of a sacred, inner, spiritual side and kind of a bodily nature, like, like just, just, just secular side. We experience life of that dualism, but that's not really your life. Your life is these things come together. You are inseparable from your physical self, your spiritual self. Your body is a really essential part of things. You are not some immaterial substance. You are body and spirit come together. That's how God made you. Your body and spirit come together. That's how God made you. To be a person is to be spiritual, have an, kind of an internal reality. Sometimes we think of this as soul. There's a lot of biblical words, heart, mind, you're an internal self, but you're a physical self as well. You come together, and that's how God designed you, and it matters that he's done it that way. Sam Albury uh, says this, and I, I think this is so good. 
If, if our bodies were merely a product of accidental uh, processes, we could justifiably write embodiment off as having no theological significance. Our body uh, would tell us nothing substantial about who we are. Our sense of self would be found entirely elsewhere and no necessary, uh, with, with no necessary reference to our body. But if we have been created, then our body is not some arbitrary lump of matter. It means something. It's not peripheral to our understanding of who we are. For all the difficulties you may have with it, uh, it is the body God wanted you to have. It's a gift. I think your body matters because it is a gift. It's a part of who God made you to be, and it's something that we can embrace. And for all its difficulties, I think it's important that we consider the value of it. Your body matters. And I just want to keep pressing on this point. I apologize if I'm boring you, <laughs> but I really think this is so important. And I think if we think about the way the Bible portrays our ultimate hope, it kind of like makes us realize, oh man, yeah, the body really is important. Okay, so here's a question. What is heaven like? What is heaven like? What is it going to be like ultimately? I think a lot of us have ideas of heaven that it's like a disembodied place. Right? We learn that from Looney Tunes, right? right? What is it? The coyote, his spirit comes out, and now he's up there, right? He's, he's disembodied. Um, that's, that's literally, I was thinking about what is it, and that was the first image that popped into my mind, Looney Tunes. This is how, how deeply shaping <laughs> things are. These are this is, I'm a very deep person here, guys. Looney Tunes is forming my worldview. Um, but a, a, a lot of us have ideas of that. We, we have this idea that, that heaven is, is, is like a place where we'll go to finally be rid of our bodies. Like, oh, yes, heaven, no more body. And I want to be clear on something. I want to be clear on something. Because a lot of people have lost people. And I just want to be, be super clear. Uh, those people who have died, who have been separated from their bodies, are with God. When we die, our bodies and spirits are separated. You go into the ground, your body stays here, your spirit goes to be with God. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5.16. He says, we would prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he, so he has this expectation that, that when, we, when we pass away, when we, when we die, we are with the Lord, away from our bodies. Okay? So I just want to say that to be really clear. I don't, I'm, not, I'm not trying to criticize your idea of heaven. Like It's important that we understand that the people we've lost and the people that we love are with the Lord right now. There's nothing bad going on with them. They're present with him. Okay? Those who are di have died have, are present with God. They are safe, secure. He is watching over them, and they are in a, in a good place. Present with the Lord is a good thing. But I would say, if we read Scripture, we have an even greater hope than that, than being disembodied spirit soul, you know, immaterial self, present with the, with, with the Lord. The great hope that we have is not that God is like, we're just going to be rid of our bodies finally, and be rid of the annoyances of man. But the great hope that we have is that Jesus is coming back and that we will, when he does, be resurrected back in our bodies with him. John 5, uh, 28 and 29, Jesus says this, a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life. Those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of condemnation. Resurrection is the destination after disembodiment. It's re-embodiment. We come back into our bodies. 
Your body really matters. The Bible understands the body to matter. Jesus is going to return. And when he does, the dead will be raised. They will have bodies again. And so if our idea is that somehow we need to get over our bodies or ignore our bodies or get past our bodies or act like they aren't important, I would say that Scripture is screaming out to us, actually, no, our bodies are much more significant than we might consider. Your body matters, actually, because the body is an eternally persistent idea, at least according to the Bible. It is a persistent idea. Yes, you leave the body at death, but you are coming back to a body. The real you... The real you is not just spirit, disembodied. God has a plan for the real you to bring you back into a body, and it's a good plan. The real you will be eternally in a body, and eternally spirit and body. Now, a little theology, right? We'll acknowledge some theological things. Um, 1 Corinthians uh, 15, 42 the bodies that we have eternally are not quite the same as the bodies we have now, but they're still bodies, okay? So 1 Corinthians 15, 42, Paul says this, uh, so, it's with the, so it is with the resurrection of the dead, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption, sown in dishonor, raised in glory, sown in weakness, raised in power, sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. We have to understand this. And this is the reason why we can be super hopeful to have this new body, this eternally persistent body, because it is upon resurrection, we are going to be renewed in our power, in spirituality, in glory, in honor, in incorruption. We're going to have a body, yes, and it's a body. It's still a body. It's going to be a renewed body, and it's going to be beautiful. We need to hope, and we actually have to have a hope for bodily renewal. And it's a good thing. It's worthwhile. If we are always in our minds resenting our bodies and thinking that they're just in the way, then I think we're not lining up with the hope that we have in Scripture. We have a good hope in Scripture. Um, Nancy Piercy kind of comments on... Um, Spiritual body. She says this. I think it's helpful. The term spiritual body is often misunderstood to mean something ghostly and intangible. I'm arguing that it's not. It's actually a real physical body. But the adjective does not tell us what the body is made of. Rather, what powers it. By analogy, a gasoline engine is not made of gasoline, but powered by it. The great church father, Augustine, explains, they will be spiritual not because they will cease to be bodies, but because they will be sustained by a quickening spirit. In the resurrection from the dead, our bodies will be fully powered and sustained by God's spirit. Still bodies, renewed bodies. What a beautiful hope. Yes, um, we'll have resurrected bodies, but they'll be spiritual bodies. There's still gonna be bodies. The body, let me tell you this, your body is not a problem. Your body is not your biggest obstacle. Your body is not something to resent and hate Your body has potential, spiritual potential that God gave it because he created you and he created you good. And he can do a spiritual work in your body to renew you. I hope I've made that clear. If you think your body is a problem, it's not. It's a gift. It has remarkable potential. It is not, it is not, your body is not in an, um, adversarial relationship with your spiritual life. I really want you to understand that. Your body is not in an adversarial relationship with your spiritual life. 
It's not set against your spiritual life. Your body is a part of your life, and it's an important part of life. Now, all that said, we do have a problem. The problem isn't our bodies. We do have a problem. The problem is sin. Sin has impacted our bodies, our experience, rather, of embodiment in really negative ways. Sin is an issue. The problem is sin. We should really hate sin. We should really love our bodies. (laughs) Um, see, See, God created the world good. He created the body good. And when Adam and Eve sinned, the world just broke. The world broke. The spiritual power that was in the world, it broke because, because the, whole, the whole system that God set up, it, it, it's designed for him to just be sustaining and loving and being in relationship with people, it broke. Um, the Hebrew prophets had a word for kind of like the ideal that God had, the, the ideal at creation, they call it shalom. You've probably heard that word before, right? Your Messianic Jewish friends talk about it all the time. Um, shalom is, is, is a world, and we, we tend to, to think of it as just as, as peace. Uh, peace. Shalom is just peace. Um, but Cornelius Plantinga Jr., which is just an amazing name, um, says this about this. He says, The webbing together of God, humans, and all of creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight is what the Hebrew prophets call shalom. We call it peace, but it means more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. God created this world full of shalom. He designed the world to be sustained by him, powered by him to be a place where he could provide, where he would care, where he would meet the needs and establish justice and make the world glorify him and have us be glorifying him in the middle of the world. God designed the world to be a place full of shalom, but sin came into the world and broke it. Plantinga goes on, he said, sin sin is blamable human vandalism of these great realities and therefore is an affront to the architect and the builder. I love that. Shalom is, uh, sin is shalom vandalism. Where we take God's created plan, it was good, it was great, and we just say, ah, I've got a, I've got a better peace plan. I've got a better peace plan than the one that you have, God. It doesn't involve me obeying you or listening to you or being sustained by you or trusting you or having faith in you. It just involves me doing really great and toiling my way and sustaining myself. Sin is this reality that steps, uh, that comes into our hearts and it breaks things. Sin is shalom vandalism and it is a peace-destroying disorder and it is damage, damaging us and it's breaking our relationships with God, with God and it is, it is deeply embedded in us and it's, it's hurting us and it's, it's, it's distorting our ideas of, of our, our life in at least three ways. And it's impacting our bodily, our bodies in at least three ways. The first one is, is it's caused death. Sin came, this shalom vandalism came, and it brings death into the world. Death is not God's plan. The separation 
of, of the, the body from, from the spirit is not God's plan. It's not part of God's shalom. Death is a tragedy. The Bible is unequivocal about it. Death is a tragedy. And, not, and it's a tragedy, which is like a bummer. But the hope that we have actually is that it's a tragedy that is finally going to be overcome and put away eternally. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 and 20, uh, Paul says this, As it is, Christ's been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as uh, in all Adam died because of sin, so also in Christ all will be made alive. For he must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be abolished is death. For God has put everything under his feet. Sin brought death into the world. Jesus is going to make that right. Second, sin has brought disorder into the heart. And this is the part, I think, where we, we experience this in our bodies. We, we experience the consequences of sin in our bodies. We have disordered loves. We have disordered worship. We have decided to go our own way to va vandalize the shalom, the peace, the plan of God. And we do it so persistently. We put ourselves in centered and we, we worship ourselves. Uh, Nancy Piercy, again, she, she explains it this way. says, the mainspring of sin is not that we have bodies. It's not that we have bodies, but that we put things besides God at the center of our lives and turn them into idols. Paul unpacks this idea that saying that those who worship, who do not worship the transcendent creator will worship something in the material world instead. We're always worshiping something. We're always worshiping something. In his word, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. From Romans 1.25. When we put anything in God's place, it functions as our idol. Sin has done this. It has led us into a worshiping relationship and an embodied relationship where our bodies and our spirits are worshiping false things. That's what sin has done. It's broken the shalom. It's broken our worship. It's broken our reliance upon God to the point where we don't even know how to get it back on our own. We're so lost. We're so habitually into worshiping false things. Sin does this to the point where we think, it must be something in my body. It just must be my body is not capable of worshiping God. No, it's sin has distorted you. Your body has spiritual potential. Your body matters. The things we do in the body matters. That's why the call of the historic Christian sexual ethic is to glorify God in your bodies like we talked about last week. It really matters what we do. We are habitually caught up in a web of devotion to idols. I am. You are. That is our natural, sinful state. That is, this, this is what sin has done to us. And the third consequence of sin is, is because of our disordered worship, right? Because of the, our, our persistent worshiping of idols and the sin that's just like wrecking our lives in, in our worship and, and, and disordering our loves. We're loving ourselves, loving, loving idols. Because of that, we are alienated from our Creator and from the purpose that we've been called to. We're called to be people who are sustained by him, by his shalom, by his peace, by his, by his, by his life and, and his presence among us, and yet we are alienated from him. 
The Bible does not separate the body off into a lower story where it's reduced to a biochemical machine. Instead, the body is intrinsic to the person, and therefore it will ultimately be redeemed along with the person, a process that begins even in this life. Welton, Don Welton, he's a uh, philosopher, writes, in the final analysis, the New Testament does not argue for a rejection of the body, but for its redemption and transformation into a site of moral and spiritual disclosure in the actions. You're one. You are one person. There is no division, no alienation. We are embodied beings. And yet sin has divided us. Sin makes us think that it just doesn't matter what we do. Sin makes us think that we have no need to worship God, that we can play games. Sin has alienated us, though, from our purpose. You are, before you're called to anything, you're actually called to wholeness. You're called to wholeness, to be singularly devoted to God from inside out to have renewal and grace and transformation inside and out, to find your place in the peace, in the shalom of God, to be a whole and unified person, body and spirit. So when we ask this question, well, why does our body matter? Can't I just love God from the heart? That is just imposing this idea that we're just separate sort of people, divided kinds of people. That's just giving into sin. Sin is lying to you and making you think it doesn't matter. Oh, yeah, if I give just God, if I give a little of the inside, then it doesn't matter what goes on in the outside or, or the pharisaical error, the opposite. If I just give the outside, it doesn't matter what's going on in the inside. What Jesus is pointing to over and over again in people, what the Bible is pointing us to over and over again is people that we've been divided, heart, body, and we need to bring our whole self back to God. He's redeeming our whole self all of creation. Everything's been broken. We need to come back into his plan. And we do that by faith in what Jesus has done. Romans 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. This is our faith. This is what we put our faith in. Our old self has been crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin since a person who has died is free from sin. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you obey its desires and do not offer your parts, of the parts of it, to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. It's not be righteous. It's not earn your way into the favor of God. It's understand. Jesus offered him his whole self as a sacrifice for your sin. He died, and he's rising again, and he is going to bring renewal into the world as a result of what he's done. And so you just, 
Look at his sacrifice. You look at his plan. You look at his graciousness and his kindness. And you put your faith in who he is. You put your faith in what he's done. And you don't need to just come in and just be like, oh, I'm just going to bring my heart. I'm going I'm to bring it to God. You just look at what he's done and you just respond and you consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God in Jesus Christ because I know he's done it. I know he's taken away my sin. I know he's restoring the shalom. I know he's restoring everything that was lost. I know he's, he's making me a full, whole person again. And as I seek to honor him and obey him, I'm going to have a restored life. And the result of this is that we're not going to let sin reign in our mortal bodies. And instead, we're going to be restored in worship, not to offer, offer our bodies as, as worship to false things, but offer them to God, alive to him, and our, all of our parts as weapons of righteousness. Your body matters because what you do with it is worship. One way or another, it's worship. You're a whole self. You're not just your mind. You're not just your spirit. You live a life in a body. And you're called to worship God, not to earn his favor, but just step into his peace and his plan. Jesus has done all the work. We get to just walk in in worship and in praise and in with our whole selves to, to, to just, just worship him. Worship him in our bodies, worship in our spirits, worship him in our hearts, worship him in our lives, worship him as whole people. I know it's a simple thing. I know it's a thing that we just say, yeah, well, of course, of course we need to do that. But it's one of those things where I think the first step, and the first step before we step out and we start to ask these questions, worship team can come up. Uh, the first step that when, we, when we start to, to, to ask questions like, okay, what, what are we going to do as we think about the, the sexual ethic? What are we going to be, be doing as we think about bodies? We have to understand that our bodies have so much potential. Our bodies have so much potential. They could be like weapons of righteousness. They could be like weapons of righteousness. Your body can be like a weapon of righteousness if only it's offered to God and not put in service of false things. <sighs> okay, God, I don't need to talk anymore. You need to talk. God, convict us of sin, righteousness, judgment. Convict us of the truth, I pray. Lord, even as we come and we pick up the bread and the cup, Lord, celebrating the body, the whole self that you came and gave, you poured it out to save us, to be a sacrifice for our sin, Lord. Even as we take those things up, Lord, would you show us what it is to worship you in our bodies? Would you show us what it is to worship you as whole people? God, our understanding, our minds are not enough. We need your presence. We need your power. We need your grace. We need your filling. God, would you show us what it is to be fully yours? body, mind, spirit, whatever we have, Lord, to worship you because it matters.